come down. Thank you. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Golden Age podcast. My name is Joe. Today I have with me Brian. Brian, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm doing really well this morning. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we've, we've been trying to set this bad boy up in, in for, for a while, but I'm so glad that we finally did. Uh, and as, as I was mentioning to you before, I'm, I, I'm really excited to talk with you because I've been wanting this to, to, to have you since we met on Interintellect. On, and we were in, in that salon, um, we, we, we discussed truth and different authors. And mm-hmm. I do know that from 2019, and correct me if I'm wrong, to 2020, you dedicated a lot of time thinking about a specific uh, philosopher, right? Uh, which was Kuhn. I think I'm yes. pronouncing it right. So I, I was wondering if you, first of all, we could start there. Like, what made you spend that amount of time thinking about one uh, philosopher? And also, um, what's next? After doing that with Kuhn, like, what's the next philosopher that you want to explore? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I got really interested in Thomas Kuhn in 2019, as you say, and that was as a side effect of being interested in revolutions, which is when society makes big shifts. And in my view, this probably does relate almost immediately to golden ages, actually. And so it was just the question of under what circumstances do big societal changes take place? And mm. since I was interested in this concept, you know, not just the the big revolutions that we think of in terms of, you know, Russian Revolution or French Revolution, but also just like revolutionary sort of transformations that happen over history. And so then I was looking for books about this and Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions came up. And so he's writing about how science comes to change its mind under periods of uncertainty. Mm. And that's how I originally got interested in him. I should say that in those, even during that time, I was also interested in a lot of other philosophers. So Mm. I've kind of gone, um, I tend to go all over the place. And right now, if you, if I had to ask, or if I had to answer which philosopher I'm interested in at the moment, it's probably Nietzsche actually. Mm. And there is a kind of relationship between those two, even though it's very unlikely that Thomas Kuhn, who was an American writing in the 1960s, would ever have read Nietzsche, who's German mm. writing in the sort of 1870s, 1880s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like one of the things that uh, I, uh, I, I understood with you is that basically he part of his point was that science revolutions happen like without this um, logical uh, structure or narrative, but then history gets uh, written and it, it gets written in a way that basically connects them, right? Um, yes. And so I was wondering, like, is, do you think that we do that in our lives as well? In, in what I mean by, uh, so go ahead, go ahead. You already have an answer. Oh, I absolutely do. I think it's really incisive and, and impressive that, that you made that connection. Kuhn does think that choices between worldviews he kind of sees you you could say paradigm scientific uh sort of subspecialties or something like that or you could just say worldviews they are mutually incompatible and therefore the choice between them can't be rational because Mm. the systems within themselves have to be rational Mm. but in order to make the choice between systems 
you kind of can't make it at the rational level. And that makes him sound kind of irrational, which is he's definitely not. But you can compare it to like the choice between political systems. And for example, if you have a political revolution, you're changing from one way of doing politics to another way of doing politics. But almost by definition, if you have a revolution, that choice is not made at the level of politics. It's made at a level above between two things that may, you can compare their results, but you can't sort of decide to adopt a completely different political system from within the framework of another political system, yeah. if that makes sense. So when, when yeah. a revolution occurs, yeah. it has to be at this level outside it's extra political. Does that make sense? And so in a yeah. certain sense, uh, the choice between worldviews is also extra rational, which is not mm. to say that they're all alike, because that's definitely not true, but that they have a complicated series of trade-offs that you can only sort of make the decision within sort of an environment or, or context. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, a lot. Um, and, 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 and like one of my shifting to one of the things that I really admire about you and and I thought about that on 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 our salon the first time that I saw you was the care that you um use while considering ideas mm -hmm. so what I mean by this is that and everyone that listens to your podcast uh which we'll get into um can can understand this like you're one of the uh people that I follow that actually I and this is my personal belief but uh, that actually cares a lot about ideas and, and is very thoughtful about them, right? Mm. And so I guess that my, my, my question, and, and, and everyone listening to this podcast just realized that by your answer. So how, I, I think my, 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 my question would be, and I know it's a big general question, but like how do you explain your relationship with ideas? Mm. That's a great question. And I'm, I think I'm going to go back to your earlier question, which, which mm. is, the the question of does this issue of worldviews or or let's say scientific paradigms does it also apply in the individual's life and my mm -hmm. view is that it does so in other words i have gone through many different periods of my life and been very interested in if not you know major western philosophers per se then many different worldviews and i've come out with kind of humility about the extent to which any of them could be could exhaustively explain something in my life. So in other words, thinking about how different completely conflicting worldviews might sort of each contribute to my overall understanding of the world. And so mm -hmm. you can see the kind of analogy to the scientific paradigms, which is that it might be a, a mutually exclusive view. Like I can't both be committed to the ideas of let's say Nietzsche, as well as the ideas of let's say Kant, but mm -hmm. I can read both of them and, you know, come out with something useful for living. Yeah. And so to come back to this question of how I relate to ideas, I, I do try to hold them lightly, but at the same time, I don't like dismissing ideas lightly either. I do have sometimes have a tendency, I get, you know, get angry at this 
person or that person <laughs> or whatever, just, you know, I'm completely human. But at the same time, I find it like, I don't want to be lazy and just assume I can read a short summary of someone's work and then think, oh, I know all about this person. I would mm. rather go in and adopt that worldview for a while. You know, often mm. books take a few weeks or months to read. And while I'm doing that, just see what the effects of it are. So I'm very interested in the kind of pragmatics of philosophy or, or like what is the effect of living on adopting a certain set of ideas mm. and trying to hold it lightly so that I don't become too attached to it. Mm. Does that answer it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. So how, how are you implementing this process? Uh, say you're, you're reading your book and you're realizing like the, the principles in that book. And then are, are you consciously uh, making decisions based on those same principles? Like how do you go about this process? It's a great question. So I, it depends a little on how I'm reading the book. Often I find mm. that audiobooks they kind of rattle around my head. I'm, I'm quite an auditory person, I think. And mm. so I listen to those and because I'm sort of going through my daily business as I listen to the audiobook, then it kind of seeps in to my life and the way that I think. Mm. When I'm reading um, either a digital or a physical book, it's both important to me that I read it over a period of time. So I don't tend to rush through books. It's more likely that I'm reading 10 or 15 or 20 books at the same time. Some of them yeah. are like completely on the back burner, but I pick them up occasionally. And then Readwise has been quite transformative for me, which is mm. just the ability to make highlights in digital books, or you can also add, I can also add highlights from physical books. It's uh, with OCR mm. and then Readwise has a kind of spaced repetition system where things come back. And so I, so I'm quite deliberate about, okay, what is this about that meta choice of like, which books am I going to read? But then once mm -hmm. I've chosen, then I try to live with those ideas as if they were true, mm. <laughs> which is not to say that I, I think that they're false, but more like in order to really understand another person's worldview, you kind of have to adopt more than you might expect in order to kind of say what is the world like from this lens or something like mm. that mm. yeah that, that's that's a great answer uh and so uh, one of the things that I, that I do believe in and I, I want your take on it is that um so first of all one of the things before that that I really enjoy and, and you mentioned about it is is like how can philosophy be practical mm. because sometimes you you, you talk with people that are either exploring philosophy or consider themselves themselves philosophers and and usually the level of conversation is just pure abstraction mm. right um and i'm i'm fine with abstraction i love it abstract often but uh but also if if we have if we're talking about philosophy i do believe that we then want to understand how can that affect our life and our thinking right and our understanding and our worldview and so personally i do believe there are three things that that somehow help us do this the first mm. one is reading as you yes. mentioned then writing and, and 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 to me i believe that writing is deeply associated with thinking right and so i was wondering like if if i was um to say adopt your like how's how how is your own structure of reading and writing and thinking like how do you go about that process of just picking a book do you take notes uh, don't you take notes like how how guide me to the brian camps process of, of of thinking 
about a book. So I do keep notes in Zotero about books that I hear about or read about. And I use this system called the Zettelkasten. I have written about it online if you're interested in reading about that kind of process. Have you heard of it before or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this is a kind of, it's like the digital equivalent of just having a lot of index cards where you write sort of maybe quotes, but also thoughts, and then they're very heavily interconnected. And so when I'm reading, I am, I take pretty minimal notes and over a long period of time. And often these days I'm reading on Kindle. So I'm highlighting, I'm also adding notes in there, and then those are syncing up to Readwise. Mm. And then when they come back up in Readwise, then I create a Zettel for them, which is just like a, you know, a file that has a, a short, they're supposed to be like atomic. So like one idea mm. on each card. And then I'm connecting that with other thinking I've done in the past. So, and so that is the process of writing. And I really liked what you said about the act of writing as being very connected to thinking. So, mm -hmm. and I'm also curious, what was the third thing besides reading and writing? That, that uh, it was, had... I, 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 like, I, I had thinking there as well, oh, thinking. Like, okay, yeah. uh, differentiated, but, but I, I, I did, but I do believe that thinking ends up being a byproduct of writing. So even okay, though there are yeah. three, it's just a, a byproduct of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree that, um, those two are related and I think of the Zettelkasten system. This is something from Sunka Arens who wrote a book called how to take smart notes, which is kind of a description of how one might implement this Zettelkasten note taking system. And he talks about, you know, what it is, is it's a process of thinking in writing. So that you can come back to mm -hmm. these thoughts. And I, mm -hmm. I find that to be true. So I go back, even today, I was looking at things, you know, that I wrote maybe one, two, three years ago. And I think, oh, I know I've heard of this. <laughs> in, in particular, it was Xenophanes of Colophon, who's like a fifth century BC Greek guy. And I was like, have I heard of this guy before? And actually, I've written a bunch of notes about him. And I'm like, oh, and I can just read those thoughts from maybe one or two years ago. And mm. be, it, it's almost like it takes you back in time to that place somehow. Um, yeah. And I've never had that with other forms of note taking my whole life, you know, from school onward, I would, you know, just fill notebooks and everything like that. And yet, I would never go back and reread them because I didn't have a way of kind of entering them somehow. I don't yeah. know. Is this a problem you've had? Or <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like finding finding the idea of that old guest and specifically I, 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 I use Rome research to, mm -hmm. to do it. Like having the the capacity of creating these pages that then uh, when I'm thinking or when I'm writing I can I can get back and realize, oh uh, I, I, I a perfect example to prepare for this interview when we met on the intellect salon one of the first things that i did was basically create a roam page with the name of everyone oh, wow. and yeah and we, and when we were having the discussion and i was enjoying like your 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 own thoughts and thinking about truth uh, i was taking notes in in your page and and i was actually adding my own personal notes to what you were saying or my own vision of of who, who you were and and I, and I told you before like i i was very impressed by how 
you you guys were having like this very complex uh, uh conversation i had just fallen in in there like uh, with the parachute trying to understand what is going on and i was asking these questions that were very simple questions but the the way and the thoughtfulness that that you used to take care of my own and to answer my own question was something that impressed me and i wrote that and while getting ready for this interview the first thing that i did was opening uh, opening up rome research opening up the the page ryan came let, let's see everything that i have here with Brian, mm, mm. like the notes on your podcast, the, the in, on your writing, on on some of the videos that I watch, and and was basically just picking the favorite questions, let's say, and and just bring them to a page to to, to ask you. So uh, previously, um, before I I, I I didn't have Rome or Zoom uh, or or Zettelkast, and I I I had precisely the same problem with you, and sometimes I still have it uh, because I didn't tag something in in Rome the way I should. Um, or, or it has a different phrasing, but but it's clearly better right now. Um, mm. So so I totally get what you what you're saying. Yeah, so I think that describes my overall process, and I think the other aspect that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that I kind of think that the important ideas that come out of the history of thought, but also just like the ones that I'm working on, they tend to have this kind of balance between sort of order and chaos, I guess might be the simple way of saying it. But like, I've been kind of thinking about this health model of inquiry. So rather than thinking about truth as this kind of objective thing that we have different methods for just gradually unveiling and therefore mm -hmm we all see the same thing. I've been thinking more that that kind of, there's a method of analysis that, as you were saying, can, can be very abstract within philosophy or mathematics or the sciences, and it can be quite maybe rigid and sort of rational, but then there's another sort of side to this equation, which draws us back towards experience. And so rather than thinking that truth is a single, sort of objective thing that we have unique methods within science for un unearthing or unveiling and then we just find this object it's more like there's a kind of pattern of going back and forth from abstract concepts and then back towards experience so that kind of relates to what you were saying about yeah. you know philosophy running the risk of becoming too abstract and then not relating to life again and so in my view, it's like, I've been thinking about this kind of almost like zigzag pattern that's necessary. Mm. And I've been thinking about it in terms of like health, you know, uh, there are times when your body needs to sleep, but your body also needs to move, right? And these are not contradictory, right? They're yeah. both complementary. They're complementary and they're both important parts of health. And I've been thinking about this kind of health model of inquiry where if you get too abstract, then it's time to go back towards, you know, experience and test this out and see how a life lived using that framework is. And then you can also go too far the other direction where you're not really doing enough synthesis of experience, or maybe you're not learning from experience mm -hmm. and you actually need to kind of go back towards the conceptual and think, okay, what have I learned? And so yeah. there's something that's an idea that I've been working with recently as a kind of overall framework for how I view the, the history of philosophy and the history of human 
thought, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that you just mentioned, Inkri, um, like, I, I associate, like, my favorite people and my favorite thinkers are usually people that, instead of using a lot of statements, start by posing questions. Mm. Uh, and, 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 of course, <clears throat> any question will eventually lead itself to, to a statement or to an answer, uh, I think. But, but like, I... I do believe that the best people um, to to actually talk about it and and to learn from are people that are always posing or like posing questions. Mm. And so I guess that my question would be, uh, what are some of your so what are some of your favorite questions ever? And, and I think the second one would be like the follow up would be, what are some of oh, what are some of the questions you're posing or asking yourself or the world right now? That is a great question. And I too, <laughs> like philosophers who ask questions or just people who ask questions, they don't, it doesn't always need to be in philosophy. I kind of have a view that eventually they need to come out of philosophy and make this relevant to, you know, people who are not so interested in philosophy, because it might just be mm. a weird kind of disease that you get at a certain point in your, or at least <laughs> that I've gotten in my life in the last couple of years, that maybe the lockdown and things like that were like, Oh, I'll seek refuge in philosophy. But if you, if mm. I stay there forever, then I'll feel like a bit alienated or something mm. like that. Mm. And so the question of what questions I'm thinking about, I think the first driving one that I, that organized a lot of my life and is still one that's central to what I'm thinking about today is why do we suffer? And mm. that's a question that I think relates to one of the other questions that I have, which is how do complex things persist through time? On the face of it, they may not seem all that related, mm -hmm. but I kind of have a sort of evolutionary understanding of how ideas change, how people change. And I think that this question of existential suffering, so not just pain, which is, you know, directly something goes wrong and it hurts, but this secondary level of sort of existential suffering or existential angst or something like that, which I had from a young age. And mm -hmm. that question was like, the question comes from a place of like, this can't be normal, <laughs> which is like, why, mm -hmm. like, why? Why is life like this? And I think mm. it's, a, it's a hard question, of course, and not one that I can just give you an easy answer to. But at the same time, it's one that through sort of decades of like working on it and experimenting in different ways, I no longer feel that that question is life-threatening, maybe, let's say. Like it's now become like an interesting question for me, mm. which is like, how has the modern condition of maybe some feelings of alienation or, you know, loneliness mm. or just not feeling kind of right for the environment, you know, in a way that perhaps animals don't feel to, at least in the wild, don't feel to the same extent. They, yeah. you know, you know, I certainly live around a lot of trees and the trees don't have any, <laughs> I don't get any vibes from them that they're not happy in their environment. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I can't speak for everyone. I'm sure there are many yeah. people listening to this podcast who are much happier than I am, but I could say that in many times in my life, I felt slightly out of place or like I didn't quite fit my environment somehow. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and 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 sorry, were you were you finishing? Uh, no. So I guess that my, yeah. One question: Why do we suffer? And another question is: How does complexity arise and remain? Because it seems yeah. I, I just have a bunch of questions within that philosophy thing, and because I see cultural formations, including states of mind, like not just our moods, but our ways of viewing the world as themselves, almost lifelike organisms that kind of perpetuate themselves and live in their own environment. Mm. Like how do these things relate to the kind of existential questions that we have? Like, did we always have these existential questions or are they new would be like mm. a, a, one of the a central part of this question, you know? Mm. Yeah. So I just want to get back to, to ask you a, 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 a more, uh, I guess, personal question and, and feel free to, to, to not answer. But like you, you mentioned that the, the question of why you suffer, it, it changes, stop being life threatening and start to be interesting. And I was wondering, like, what did um, prompt that change? Like, what, how, did you change the question change? Was it some understanding of suffering itself that changed? Yeah, I think probably I changed. And I think that the number one driver of that change was actually meditation. And mm. that meditation has taken many forms. I started five or six years ago. And that kind of allowed me almost to like start the true investigation rather than being on a desperate search for relief as I was mm. in most of my 20s. And like, what is wrong with me? Why can't I be happy? Why does nothing seemed to sort of sink in or yeah. positive things. And I still have a fairly strong <laughs> negativity bias, I would say. But with meditation came both the tool to investigate the question and actually relief from the suffering, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do believe that meditation is, is a great way to do that. First of mm -hmm. all, relieve your own suffering, which will then allow you to look at whatever was there in, in a more... Uh, in a not so emotional way, uh, mm -hmm. right? Instead of the, instead of seeing that those phenomena as something that are inherently bad or, or are causing suffering, if I'm relief of that suffering, I can look at it from a, from a different lenses and actually understand. Oh, okay, maybe it's because I did this, and or or other people are this way, and I have this worldview, or there's this belief that's different, right? Um, so, so yeah, I do believe that, that meditation is a great way. By the way, uh, do you have like any kind of daily practice? How's your relationship with meditation? So I do have a daily practice. I'm not incredibly rigid as in, it's not like I do every single day of my life. I mm. do most days, I would say, uh, mm. there are sometimes when I'm too busy or, you know, there's something, yeah. something going on, but I would say on a, on a normal week, I would meditate every day. Yeah. And so, yeah. and that's only sort of 15, 20 minutes. It varies a little bit. I've gone up to as much as like 45 and then kind of mm. scaled it back down to 10 and then mm. try, sort of found that about 20 minutes is like a good level for me. Yeah. And what the actual practice is changes over time. But right okay. now I'm doing a form of Buddhist meditation, which is kind of analytical on this concept called dependent origination or dependent mm. co-arising, which is a quite seems very abstract. It, it is a difficult uh, sort of to, to summarize easily, but if people are interested, there's an excellent book on this topic by a guy named Lee Brasington 
And that book is called Dependent Origination and Emptiness. Mm. I would be happy to explain it, but it is, I just wanted uh, yeah, to yeah, like yeah, a yeah. quite involved topic. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we can, we can leave the, the link in the description uh, and, yeah. and, and people will, will check the book. And can I ask um, you, do you have yeah. a meditation practice? Or? Yeah, I, it, it changes over time. So I, I'm not as a committed meditator as you, uh, like I, I, Sometimes I, I do have like these streaks where I'm meditating every day. Mm. Uh, other times I, I, I'm not, but I do try to have at least one activity a, a day where I'm fully present, regardless yes. of it being meditation or not. So one of the things that I do rather often is when I feel that like that I'm in the need of just having a little bit of space, like creating space in and free space in my mind one of the things that i'll do is that i'll just pick up the guitar and start mm. improvising because um i was a jazz musician before having a wrist injury uh and so i've developed this relationship with the guitar where i can basically just turn down my brain and my my, my analytical mind and the inner dialogue and just replace it with with notes and sounds uh and musical ideas and so i i i would say that i i do that rather often uh, when I'm not meditating or another mm. thing that I'll do is um, I'll go run and sometimes I will do it without any kind of music just going on run and I do find like the 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 practical benefits of meditation usually are similar to to those mm. of, of running without music or just playing the guitar without any without playing mm. a specific song or anything else um, yeah yeah and this relates actually to what we were just talking about in terms of the question of whether you go more towards abstraction or more towards experience, because I mm. totally agree that exercise running, I also lift weights and I find yeah. a similar kind of benefit from that. And I would say that in my early life, I was searching for answers, like why, mm. like it feels like something's wrong. There must be like an intellectual answer. Mm. And I did a lot of searching, which, I don't regret in any way, but I think it wasn't until I started, especially meditation, I started exercising relatively frequently, maybe about a little bit before I started meditating, maybe three or four years before. And you could say that those are the equivalent of a return to experience, right? And that's what mm -hmm. I've actually found is that if we remain in the, or at least I'll just speak from my experience. If I remain in the realm of abstract ideas, I can often make a sort of psychodrama about just about anything like, oh, this mm. person thinks this, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And, um, you know, that I, I can generate this massive story that's very dramatic and has all these problems. And then if I keep trying to analyze, then it tends to make that story grow. Whereas... Mm. If I think in a, it's still analytical, but it's, it's more directed at experience. It's like, okay, how, how do I feel right now? And what's really going on here in this moment at the, at the experiential level, rather mm. than remaining in this realm of concepts. And so mm. what the, the interesting thing that I've learned on the individual level, and this is like a live thought, I haven't actually said this before or necessarily even thought this before, which is that the it's almost like the meditation where I pay really close attention to experience is what allows the conceptual layer to change. Whereas if mm. I operate at the 
conceptual layer, it tends to like reinforce it. And what I'm starting to wonder about is like, you know, if that's also true, let's say at the level of scientific revolutions, which is that mm. the things that tend to disrupt a, a working scientific paradigm are not actually intellectual arguments against, against that paradigm, but rather new experimental results yeah. <laughs> or something like that, you know? Yeah, there's, there's, there's this um, great quote and I forget from who it is, but it's something, and I'll butcher it probably, but it's something along the lines of you can, um, the only way to create a new, um, the, the only way to create change is to bring in, in is to bring a new paradigm that makes mm. the old one look obsolete. Mm. Um, and so, and and by just pointing out uh, problems in the, the current paradigm and or questions to the current paradigm, you, you can never bring that kind of, 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 of revolution, right? Because you need mm. something that comes, as you were saying, and we'll go full circle to the beginning of the conversation, we, we there's the only way to actually create something that's not in that's that's that can cause a revolution is, is to basically let it uh, it has to emerge from outside of the current system because if it is within the current system uh it probably um w won't be a new paradigm right mm. um and and not only yeah go ahead sorry no, I was just thinking as you were saying that, that this probably relates to this question of golden ages, right? Which is that it might not be obvious that sort of local community efforts could have a big societal change. But on this model, it's almost like the granularity and the care and attention taken at the level of experience can af mm. affect the, you know, your lifetime narrative. And, you know, the specific experiments that you're running as a scientist could affect, you know, could eventually provoke a scientific revolution. So just within the framework of golden ages, it might be that you have to start sort of in your own life or in your own relationships, let's say, yeah, in order yeah. to start catalyzing bigger changes you know what i mean <laughs> yeah absolutely and so and 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 that's a perfect segue to, to to the topic and and i'll i'll comment on that because i i after doing like the 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 podcast so just just some history and 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 on on the podcast itself i i decided i wanted to, to do the podcast after seeing visas meme uh on on the the dominoes meme that ended up as as um uh, golden age of humanity and i look mm -hmm. at it and i realize oh i want to be part of this um and and my uh, thinking back then was okay i don't think i can figure out this problem out of my uh, like just out of, on my own i do need to but because i i, I don't have that intellectual power so what, what what i can do though is basically um do things that i enjoy which is basically talk, talk to people and and actually ask them questions and try to understand like what's it, what does a modern golden age look like and i call it modern because there are some principles that i do believe uh will be present that will make it different from all the previous modern of all the previous golden previous golden ages but i i did end up following <laughs> wait i I ended up being too abstract about it and, and, and just forgetting about the experience. And so it took me a long time to actually start the podcast because I had this idea in my mind of, of if I want to be the host of a podcast called Modern Golden Age, I'll mm. have to have
until then I real I realized that I, that made no sense. What I had to do is to basically talk with a lot of different because who am I to say what a modern golden age looks like? Right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an individual, and if we're going to get there, that has to be um, a co-creation. It can't yes. be just one people just saying, well, this is the vision, let's go. It has to be a co-creation. So once I figured that out, I realized, well, I'm going to talk with a lot of people mm-hmm. um, and try to understand what are the common principles among all of them. And, and then I can pick those up and share and say, look, I've talked with 100 people about golden agents, and, and these are the things that almost everyone, if not everyone, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe those can serve as guiding principles for everyone to build like like this vision. And so... The the question that I usually ask every guest, um, and I will ask you right now, is what does a modern golden age looks like to you? It's a great question. And I think, for me, the key feature is something to do with flourishing and flourishing in groups. So small committed groups that are kind of working towards common goals, but they also, you know, they each have their own individual ways of manifesting that energy. And it's a kind of mutually supportive environment. So there's like encouragement. There's not a sense of, if there is a sense of competition, it's not a kind of zero sum thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be that you and I are both, inspired to make even better podcasts because I listen to yours and I think it's great and vice versa, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we, we do it in that way, but not with the understanding that I'll somehow outcompete you or that my podcast will make yours irrelevant or something like that, but rather that by both striving towards excellence, maybe in very different ways that will inspire each other and be able to encourage each other. Mm. And at least for me, there's a strong embodied element of it, or at least that's what I'm feeling at the moment, maybe just after a lot of Zoom and everything, I have massively benefited from communities like the Interintellect and the Salons and meeting people like you through these ways. But I think it's also quite important for us to sort of come together. And so there is an element of that. It seems like it's kind of happening in many different ways in, you know, at least you see sort of on Twitter, lots of kind of gatherings and things like that. And even with the II, you know, I'm lucky to be in London and there are, we, we organize gatherings. And so I think, yeah, I suppose that's my initial response. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. It, 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 and it makes, absolutely. So one of the things that I, I do believe, uh, and I call, I call it modern golden age because I believe that we're, Technology allows for something that uh, otherwise, and so far, it was impossible in terms of golden yes. ages, which is basically uh, we're no longer bounded by geography. Right. Uh, and so even though it's very, very important to build these communities and to have these gatherings, as you were mentioning, the beginning of it may be uh, online. Yes. So, and that's why I call it modern, because I do believe what's going to happen is we're going to have a bunch of different groups a bunch of different individuals meeting online, creating mm. these communities, and then it will leak out into the real world, mm-hmm. uh, right? And 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 so the community aspect of it is is fundamental because what and and I do believe that a part of 
uh, get to Mount Golden Age is is like the first brick, let's say, to get there. I, I I'm starting to believe that is helping people to live purpose-led lives mm. that will then allow them to build purpose-led projects and purpose-led mm. businesses and purpose-led governments even. And in that, when you have that kind of space, because if you're living a purpose-led life, you you inevitably you, you will meet other people that are doing the same and together you can actually co-create and, and pursue different ideas as you were mentioning like the whole inter-intellect um yes. space is one of them like the whole teapot um, community on twitter is another and so mm. doing those things um is what will then allow us to understand what's the next step to get to a to a modern golden age because I, once again i don't know what it looks like but i'm starting to believe that this is like the process of building these communities by helping people live purpose-led lives is is probably one of the first steps for us to get there so um the whole community uh, aspect of it it makes makes little sense and and in, in a sense and i would love to hear your comments on, on 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 what i just said but in a sense i do believe that that's why i started the podcast mm. that because i believe that right now geographically even the lisbon is starting to get more and more people and i'm really excited about that uh it, it would be hard to get those gatherings, right? And having the podcast has allowed me to connect with people and start building relationships that will then turn into friendships um, through through just the online meeting. And the the major goal is always like building a relationship online, transforming it into a friendship, and then getting it offline, right? Leaking into into reality. Um, and and so that's my uh, view on on. Uh, what you just said about the importance of the community. Um, mm. But go ahead. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, first, I love that you start with the purpose-led life because I do think that it's about living rather than abstract ideas. It, it's important to put the emphasis on action, experimentation, trying things out, trying social experiments to see what works. Because yes. to me, if you kind of try to do too much in the abstract realm of ideas it's not that you shouldn't have ideas and and test them out but more like if you do too much of engineering at the start then and you never get around to the actually living the purpose-led life then yeah. it kind of just remains a nice idea rather than something that has practical consequences yeah. and the other thing that brought it, it brought to mind is just that what you were saying about inviting people onto a podcast to build that community and to think together with you. I think that that may be the primary and original way of thinking that, you know, mm. we oral yeah. culture long, long predates writing. It's not really known how long we've been speaking for, but it's at least tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years. Right. So it's, it's really, really a long time. And, Writing is maybe 4,000, 5,000 years old. I'm probably getting this wrong and someone will correct me. But, you know, like that's the order of magnitude, at least. Let's say, mm. you know, speaking is maybe a hundred times older than than writing is. And yeah. so it's just something that I've been a kind of idea that I've been exposed to and, and, and thinking about, which is that what if thinking doesn't begin in a single mind? What if it begins in speech? And so 
you know, it's dialogical from the start, you know, in the same way that we can kind of have little conversations with ourselves inside our head, but maybe that's not the original way of thinking at all. And that's actually a mm. kind of downstream effect of having conversations over a very long period. And so I think your approach is, in my view, it just very much aligns with, with the way that I'm thinking about how thinking arises in the first place. Yeah, know? that makes a lot of sense. I had never thought about that, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and because the way I, I'm thinking about it is, um, and as, as you also said, like this is, I, I never thought about this, so it, 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 it has no filters, but I, I'm thinking about how maybe the original thought comes from conversation and then mm. writing allows you to clarify your individual version of that thought that emerged out of the community right mm -hmm. um so yes. um and 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 that and that uh, making like a relationship because that was the first thing that popped out in my mind when you were talking about i i see that has a jazz group and mm. i do have a tendency to compare a lot of things with jazz but it it, it it, it taught me so much and, and what usually happens when you're when you're playing a, a, a jazz game is that there's a moment where what what happens is you're improvising right jazz mm -hmm. is out of improvisation and so uh like from from an outside perspective it may look like like what's happening is let's say you have like a saxophone uh, piano, uh, double bass, and the drums. And it may look like uh, like if the saxophone is soloing, it may look like everyone else is just building a bed so the mm -hmm. soloist can, can, can play above them. But the truth is, if you play jazz for a while, you'll understand that what is happening, you're co-creating something. Like mm -hmm. everything is influencing each other, right? If, if, the music, if the musicians know, them, know each other and they're actually connecting, what is happening is it, it's always a constant um, co-creation. Right. And even though someone is sewing, meaning he's uh, the the one that's that's somehow getting more leading attention, bit, yeah, leading a bit. The reality is that everyone else is influencing everyone else, right? The, that's what mm. the great jazz musicians do. And maybe in conversation and thinking, the same thing happens. Mm. If we gather a group, maybe you're, we let's say we have like five, six different people. And someone poses a question, meaning he or she is the soloist, he's setting up an intention or a direction. But then what happens is, as we are talking, everyone else is thinking about what others, other people are, are, are um, contributing and are saying. And like the collective thought arises from there until we get an idea that can then be digested by writing, by mm -hmm. thinking, by um, reading about the aspect and clarifying or crystallizing your own thought. But the origin of it was actually on on the group um and that makes a lot of sense i really really enjoyed that that idea yeah i yeah. love what you just said about this co-creation and i also agree that writing is super important in this equation certainly in this in today's you know the the past uh, past few thousand years let's say in the sense that you have this kind of energetic oral culture and then if it's transmitted at the right moment or captured at the right moment, you can have something really incredible. And you could mm -hmm. say, you know, Homer would be an example of this, you know, the Odyssey mm. and the Iliad. You yeah. could say that parts of the Bible, which are kind of come from this much older tradition, but then they get transmitted down. And even more modern 
thinkers who have sort of circles, you know, or circles or, or, you know, when we think of the Bloomsbury set or something like that, they have these, on the one hand, they're meeting up in person. On the other hand, the reason we care about them is because they transmit something in writing. And so I think there's a kind of balancing act. At the beginning, I was talking about this issue of sort of order and chaos and this balance of it sort of leads to complexity or something lifelike. Mm -hmm. And to me, the oral culture can iterate very quickly, right? So if you and I, let's say we're meeting up with a group of friends, we'll develop in jokes and all kinds of things like very quickly. But if we never write that down, then it's not like a very durable form mm -hmm. of cultural mm -hmm. contribution, yeah. right? And, yeah. if, and so there's a kind of balance between these two, because if you start writing too early, you aren't going to get something very interesting. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of don't write anything down, you might get very rapid, you know, cultural evolution, but you won't get something that is durable through time. So yeah. this kind of relates to what I was saying earlier about my questions about how do things persist through time? And one answer is that they've got to be kind of this right balance of evolution so like change and some kind of grounding in terms of writing or setting something down or mm. you know or or it could be recording a podcast or it could yeah. be you know um making a video or something because those are forms that are are durable right like we're taking yeah. this and if we don't record it it's a nice conversation if we do record it it actually has a different effect right it kind of yeah. captures something that's right now living but mm -hmm. by the time anyone else hears it, it will be static, mm -hmm. right? It will yeah. have happened in the past, right? Yeah. And, 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 and I, I think that like writing or recording something, making it uh, like uh, grounded is, is a way of creating a, a block that can be um, then worked with, right? Mm -hmm. You're creating a piece that you can then use in the future um, to, to actually build something around it like if, if if we're having as you're saying if, if we had this conversation and we weren't recording it um it would affect both of us and yes. and we directly and could then affect uh and like in an indirect way people around us right because i'm having this conversation i'm loving what you're saying and i'm thinking oh maybe i had some friends that are actually interested in those things let me talk with them mm -hmm. so that can happen but by recording the conversation the the there's there's people that can in the future listen to it and understand oh this can be a founding block on my own thinking and, and start to think and, and apply it apply the ideas or, or think about the ideas and principles that we're laying out here into their own lives in a way that it wouldn't be possible um if they hadn't actually direct access to 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 to, to our conversation right yes. um and so so that makes a, a lot of sense um one thing yeah, i wanted to say is this is maybe just a bugbear of mine, like something that I always think about, which is this issue of going back to original sources. And so what you were saying about creating a block or creating something durable between us, and then people can kind of refer to that, right? And yeah. one thing that, you know, earlier you're asking about my sort of writing and, and thinking practice, and I wasn't always attuned to this, but now I, I try as often as I can when, when almost anyone... I respect says something or writes something that I'm like, wow, this is really cool. If they mention something else, they may, you know, let's say they put a quote in there. 
I'll go back to that original source, read the quote and the context. And often then you, you know, this leads back and back. And this is, this is why you so often, at least in the West, end up back in, in Greek philosophy, because yeah. so much of it, you know, comes from there. Stems from that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there's something about that issue of like returning to the same places. And so, you know, if you have these thinkers, whether they're, you know, modern thinkers, or, you know, even from a few hundred years ago, and you're thinking, okay, well, what's influencing them? Mm. And there is a sense in which that's sort of what philosophy is. It's this very long running dialogue or conversation mm. about people commenting on some of the same ideas over very long periods of time. But that's kind of a side note, just to say that, like, I really like this idea of making these not just making the durable blocks, but, but also kind of taking the pilgrimage to these earlier, mm. uh, you know, sort of blocks or, or keystones of earlier movements and say like, what was going on for these guys? If they keep, yeah. if they're all, uh, referring to Goethe or whatever, maybe I should read Goethe, you know, like some, something like that. Um, yeah. I don't know if that resonates at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it's like, it's something that I only recently started to, to do. Um, like going through a book and really enjoying the book and then going to the the um, bibliography and trying to listen, mm -hmm. oh, oh, okay, so he mentions this book. Well, let me read that book. Uh, and then that will often lead to another and another and all these experiences, which is which is something that I, I think it happens not only in, in uh, literature or thinking or even philosophy, but in general, because if, if, you, if you listen to a, a record, any record, any music, mm -hmm will that like the composer the band the, the artist whatever you want they, they'll have influences and if yes. you do a little digging you'll understand oh maybe the influence is this record oh and i'm going to listen to that record and say oh funny he i kind of hear what he's saying what he's playing here and let's go here and i and i do believe that progress then happens when once again someone starts to and, and i'm just thinking about this right now but maybe progress happens when mm. someone goes through these different rabbit holes in a way that maybe other people haven't gone yet and comes up after doing that all that journey it comes up with um a new way of looking at things or a new way of playing or a new way of of, of organizing a specific set of elements right mm. um and, and 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 then can cause a, a revolution by mixing all these different elements in a way that in it, it hadn't happened before right, right. um or or, or or doing that or sorry sorry or or maybe discovering something where other people just didn't um found anything um yes. but I, I don't know what 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 i love that what it's making me think of is in um, Borges, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, um, he, we, we read this um, collection of his um, labyrinths from the, from the early 60s, I think. And uh, he's got this one called Kafka and his precursors. And mm. he makes this argument that there's all these authors that if you just read them independently, they have nothing in common, but each of them is Kafka-esque, even though they're writing before mm. Kafka. And he's like, it's only after the birth of Kafka that they become, or, or after the mm. writing of Kafka that you've read it, that they and come to seem to have something mm. in common. And what they yeah. have in common is something that they could never have known because it's a person that isn't born until <laughs> until after yeah, all after. their writing is done and after they, oh. they've all died. And so there's some there might be a similar thing in music, which is that 
any good musician, of course, you know, you don't create music in a vacuum, as you were saying, yeah. right? You have these influences, yeah. but there's a, there might be a similar way that a good musician creates his own influences or creates his own uh, or her own precursors mm. by mixing all of these, you know, earlier works of genius mm. into something utterly new and contribute yeah. something, you know, himself or herself to that thing. But and then after that sort of new work comes out, the old works come to seem related, even though they weren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and it, it takes me to something that I do believe is related to, to to golden ages and to a modern golden age, which is um, intellectual or artistic uh, humility. And what I mean by this is that the only way for you to actually look to to do this and to to see all these different authors or all these different writers or all these different musicians and then uh, create something around it is if you're willing to actually explore their work regardless of how they relate to your current um field what i mean by this is that and and, and that like there are so many great musicians that mm. um ended up creating something really new because like the, the, the one example see that like if you if you take charlie parker which is one of the best um jazz saxophonists ever he the, the whole movie about replay why replay is about is about them or, or actually it's not about them but it's like the 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 structure it's it's his own story um like mm. the constant pursue of 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 greatness through him but 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 like parker what he did was basically he had a lot of influence on jazz, which was his field, but he also was uh, exploring things that were not related to jazz at all. So mm. in, a, in a moment in time where jazz was basically uh, a, a byproduct of black culture and classical music or erudite music was basically a product of, of white culture, Charlie Parker used to carry like the lead sheets from Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, mm. which is something that's wow. very far from jazz. Yes. You know, but he, what he would do, he he's it, it, he would look it's at the different harmonies, absolutely. <laughs> and so what he did was he would look at all these different harmonies and ways he, Stravinsky was using rhythm, and then he would bring that to his solos, and he he would bring that to his compositions, right? And so apparently Stravinsky would be like on the far end of what you think when you mm. think about Charlie Parker, and yet. Its influence. If if you if you start to actually analyze and and and, and know this, you'll you'll see them clearly. So I do believe that you need to bring this humility into into your own creation, into your own craft, where you're willing to explore places that don't seem like the usual places to to, to go, or, or or but but can actually teach you a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and and I do believe that's a principle to create something that that's worthwhile in modern golden age, right? To, to come up with these different ideas. Yeah, I love that. And this idea of having very wide influences. It reminds me of, for some reason, something that I was doing a few years ago, I was translating French poetry, even though I don't really speak French. I don't speak French. But I, um, you know, studied Latin, and I, I studied Spanish. And uh, then I kind of started, you know, just on Duolingo or whatever, French. And I had this idea, well, basically what it reminds me of is Stefan Zweig, the Austrian author writing sort of 
like late I think he's growing up in the late 19th century and he he dies uh commits suicide during the second world war mm-hmm. um and he wrote a memoir uh called now I'm going to forget oh um the world of yesterday and in that memoir he has other like young writers coming to him and asking him for advice about what to do what to write about and his advice was not to tell them what to write but just to say if you don't know what to write you should translate and the reason mm. that you should translate is because there's no way to get closer to a great writer than to actually go word by word you know and actually try to render the exact mm. effects of that writing it's like you're it's like the most intense form of like meditative practice mm. on a piece of writing is how do yeah. i actually bring this to life in the same way in the new language and so i or 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 sort of in my native language or the destination language whatever it's called from my understanding of what exactly is going on in the original language and so i ended up translating this poem called le bateau ivre or the the drunken ship uh by arthur rambeau a french poet from the 1870s and it's just making me think of that like that practice basically of kind of in that case actually selecting your own influences or or mm-hmm. at least saying who's someone i admire and mm-hmm. i was wondering if there's like a kind of equivalent in music i suppose doing a musical cover might be something like that mm-hmm. where you say okay i'm going to devote all this time to like take this song that i really love and make it my own but still have this you know connection to the original that yeah. you know I don't know yeah. there's just something that No but there is it's it, it, it's so funny it, it's perfect so when you're starting to learn uh, how to improvise in jazz mm. one of the things that any great teacher will tell you is the one thing that you need to do forget about studying scales and studying chords the one thing that you need to do is to transcribe your favorite solos wow so what will happen is you're listening to a record and you listen to a solo that you really enjoy and so what you'll have to do is you go back to that record and you and you actually learn how to play the solo note by note. Wow. And then after doing that you you start to incorporate the the feeling and you're starting to realize how oh, so that's how it feels to play this way, wow. right? And 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 it's yes. it's not only uh, uh, like yeah, yeah, precisely. That's the word, right? Yeah. And so what will then happen is after you're doing that, there, there's two things that may happen. The first one is you forget about the solo, but the embodiment part stays there. And sometimes mm-hmm. you're improvising and suddenly a, a, a whole sentence of that solo comes out of you, right. right? So that will happen. Or the second one is after you transcribe that solo, pick, pick them up and understand like... Uh, I analyze the solo and understand your favorite passages of the whole solo like what's going on there like what musically speaking what kind of notes is mm. he playing what kind of scale is he thinking and then improvise on that scale whatever you want but like you're basically trying to understand what are the principles that are guiding someone you admire right and then implement them on their own and so that the, the idea of translating something it, it, yes. it it's it's a direct parallel with with, with this, and, this and is, it makes a lot of sense this is amazing because it's like training the intuition right yeah it's basically i had no idea that jazz musicians do that although i i read um you know david epstein's range and he has mm-hmm. this kind of section where he contrasts the practice of classical music where you're kind of trying to get you know every note perfect mm-hmm. and yet if you get 
it's almost like if you get incredibly good at classical music, it makes it even hard. It makes it hard to improvise. And so it's like almost like a, an opposite skill. And what I'm just thinking now is like, what if it is like a sort of left hemisphere, right hemisphere kind of Absolutely. split Yeah. and the way that you sort of train the, the, you know, train each hemisphere, even though they both require practice, it's like very different forms of, of practice. I don't Yeah, know. and yeah, it, it, it's like uh, if if you ever go to a music college um, and and where where you have both jazz and classical, uh, you'll see that there's a, a Venn diagram, right? There's people in the middle which are usually not that many that really enjoy both genres and want to learn from each other. But then you'll have like the whole opposite sides where I'm I'm a classical musician. I don't even understand why would someone want to improvise. My focus is going to be playing this set of notes the in the perfect way. And you'll have like other jazz musicians who would go, I don't understand classical music. You have no freedom. Why would someone would it would want to improve their technique to a point where they can are playing every single note in uh, the very detailed way. So um, it is, sometimes it is like this very different um, approach to, to, to music. I do believe that the, the people that I admire the most, both Yes. composers, musicians, um, and even friends when I was studying and playing are people that are willing to learn from both sides. Are Mm. people that, that, are, that are trying to um, improvise with the level with the 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 like bringing the um quality of because because musical classical music uh is like you you have a sheet music and you need to understand that each single note has a certain way to be played and that's Yes. why you have like the the conductor right it's someone who understands the piece and is telling you uh, to a to a very granular level what you need to do in order to bring the whole um piece together And like jazz musicians are not that way. Sometimes you listen to a, a jazz solo and you'll, and you'll, and like the, some of the biggest jazz musicians are playing some notes where the quality of the playing is not that good. You know, sometimes it's, 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 it's just you hear these floppy notes or whatever. Uh, and I do believe that the best musicians are the ones who are trying to improvise, of course, but bringing like the quality and de dedication to each note that the classical musicians bring. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah. Would you consider classical composers more as, are they more similar to classical musicians or jazz musicians? Or do you think there's not a general answer to that question? Because I'm just thinking, you know, like on the one hand, you've got classical and there are these kind of fixed pieces and you're trying to learn to play them perfectly. But then on the other hand, you've got this improvisation. And so I'm, I'm wondering in terms of the composition of those classical pieces, was that at the time... more on the improvisational side and then Yeah. it only becomes classical by virtue of its age or is there something that was already classical about it Yeah, it, it depends on the composer. okay Um, so for instance, Bach was known by improvising a lot mm. and just then and then trying to, to, to write some of, of his favorite improvisations. Mm. So I do I I can't remember the source. Uh, I think it was one of my teachers. Uh, because w when I went to college, I did like I was studying jazz, but I did like um, optative um, uh, optative subjects in classical music because I wanted to understand specifically composing. Like one of them told me that some of his um, sonatas are actually um, and 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 um, cello suites, for instance, are actually uh, some improvisations that he used to do on the harpsichord, and then he, he wrote them. 
Um, but but once again, it varies from uh, from from different composer to, to composer because there are mm. a lot of composers that write things that they cannot play. Right. Okay. And so and so you have like cause, and and sometimes when when we think about it, we think about a composer being a musician as well, and sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you have someone who's just whose craft is writing music, not play it, right? Yes. And it's it and 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 so. Some, but then there are people that can do both and they'll have different approaches. Some people will improvise and try to understand like, how can I, um, I, I really enjoy this chord progression. How can I build like a, a, a melody around it? But other people will be very technical about it mm. and, and, and they'll follow these different structures and try to bring these different chords. Uh, and that's why for some people, if you listen to, to a bunch of different composers in, in the same um, era, let's call it that, they, they there are a lot of people who say that they'll sound the same because the structure they're they're following is indeed this, the 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 same and the, the chord progression will not be the same but it will be mm. fairly similar right mm. um but that's that's the same i guess with with writing or a, with any other yeah. art there's this movement yeah i'm thinking about writing because so my background's in literature as in i studied um 18th and 19th century literature at, as an undergraduate and as a graduate. And I'm also, if I am anything, I am a writer, I think. I do write every day. And I, when you're speaking about that issue of composers composing things that they can't play versus people who might be improvising and then trying to write down from that you know, mm. improvised inspiration, it made me wonder about you know, writers who are primarily writing things that they could never say in speech, whereas other writers might be actually writing more or less how they speak, that it's more mm. sort of conversational. And I personally, when I'm writing, especially by hand, I almost don't edit at all. Like it kind of just comes out as it, like it's formed, I would say like on the more improv improvisational side, of course, when mm. I go, you know, if I do a blog post or a longer piece or something, then of course it involves editing. Yeah. But there's, it's an interesting question, just like if there's also this split between kind of like classicism in writing, which might be more structured and, and is something that actually couldn't be said because it's kind of inherently written or something mm. like that. Whereas mm. there's another mode of writing that's more oral. Um, yeah. So even though they both end up as, you know, text on a page they're actually yeah. somehow different you know yeah yeah absolutely uh and so just going back a little one of the things that that i i, I mentioned was this idea of um intellectual humility as as something that's important to to understand like your influences and be uh willing to explore outside of, of your current realm mm. i would love to leave to to hear what are some of like i, I consider that a practice that's something you, you you can practice right i would love to listen to what are some other practices that you believe we need to do in order to to bring a modern golden age mm. So it might sound a little cliche but listening is one of the major ones i think learning to listen well is really important and not just be kind of waiting to speak, but actually trying to connect, maybe even trying to summarize or, or reflect back to the other person. That's a practice that one of my friends does and I wish I did it more often and better. It's something that I'm kind of working on. 
And then with that listening comes encouragement, which I think is a word I might have already said, which Mm -hmm. is just this in the early stages. Actually, this is something that came up for me yesterday. There's an idea from David Krakauer at the Santa Fe Institute. And um, it's this idea of the mountain monastery metropolis. And so basically Mm -hmm. the idea is that in the course of your development, or let's say in the course of writing a piece of music or writing a book or something like that, there's going to necessarily be a period where you're kind of on your own. You've got to go and get the kind of inspiration, influences, all that kind of stuff. And you're essentially, you're at the top of the mountain all on your own. Then you come down into a kind of intellectual monastery, which is a community of supportive individuals where basically whatever you're doing, it's pretty much just pure support. And it's not because criticism is not like criticism is definitely needed in order to improve. Right. Mm -hmm. But criticism that's too early can discourage you, you know, and, or at least it can certainly discourage me. And so the idea here is just that, you know, there's a really important, as we were talking about small communities of encouragement and almost like, unconditional love to put it in a extreme terms before you can go out into the metropolis where it's it's actually seen by the public and if it's anything of any worth it's not only going to be you know loved by some people it's probably also going to be attacked by some people yeah. you know and so but by that time it will have become its own almost like living thing in the sense mm. that it can defend itself whereas mm. maybe when you're at this stage of the monastery, you need to protect it a bit, foster it, nurture it, nourish it, all that kind Mm. of stuff. And to allow that initial flourishing, you know, it's like very easy to kill, you know, a young plant, let's say, or something like that. But once it's, you know, this big anti-fragile thing that's been through several, you know, seasons or whatever, then you're less concerned about, oh, is it going to die if I don't water it at the exact right hour or something like that? And I suppose those things in my mind are all related. It's like, you know, this ability to come together in a community, to listen to one another and to give pretty much unconditional encouragement. Mm. Those are skills that probably have to be learned. And I've Mm. experienced the, how hard it can be when that's not a norm within a community and someone is, you know, kind of attacking an idea too early on. Mm. And it can be quite painful, you know, it can really shut things down in that environment. And that's not to say that we all just need to be constantly, um, you know, loving everything that everyone's doing. And, you know, we can't criticize anything. But I think there's a time and place for criticism. And maybe in terms of developing a golden age, there is this place where, you know, the nascent ideas, everything's good, and we're going to encourage all of them and see which ones stick and which ones we can amplify. And rather than, I think maybe within modern society, you know, social media, whatever, there it, there can be a tendency to just attack things. And that can can be really crippling to, to certain yeah. kinds of projects, you know? Yeah, and, and ideas. So um, following that idea, like the, the there's, in, in the monastery, you'll have like this unconditional encouragement. Is yeah. there a moment where... Um, that encouragement takes a form of 
actually thoughtful feedback or criticism or the criticism only happens in the metropolis phase it probably happens in the monastery it's a good point because once you've you know let's say you and i are working on something together whether it's a piece mm. of music or writing or whatever during that period of unconditional encouragement we will build up a kind of trust where mm. you know i know that where our interests are aligned we both care about what we're working on mm. and Therefore, I can take your like even very harsh criticism where you say, mm -hmm. okay, you know, we all we both know this is all great, but this part, you know, there's all these problems and you can be very honest, you, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that will be and also we will know each other quite well yeah. by that point yeah. so that we'll be able yeah. to calibrate like and I'll know, you know, okay, yeah. one could be that, you know, I would know that you're very sensitive to criticism. I personally am quite, quite sensitive to, to criticism. Mm. And so then I can word it in such a way that you get the message without it being without. Like, hurtful or discouraging yeah with yeah. within other collaborations i've i've had it other ways where people are like no you need to be really blunt if this is not good like mm. just tell me it's crap you know or mm. something like that mm. and and that could be another emergent thing that comes within the monastery as you're saying but as a as a secondary point to the yeah. to the after idea. building yes yeah the the, the trust and relationships so, so that will lead me to another question which is what Besides what you just mentioned, like the ability to do deep listening and to provide and, and to understand, like to, to be able to construct a relationship where it, it, it's rooted in trust and, and, and love and being able to be flexible enough to adjust the way you communicate something to, to, to then one day, if needed, criticize the, their work. Because I, I'm just like, yeah. So besides all that, what are some of the aspects that you want to see in people that you're bringing to your own monastery because i do believe like like this whole from all those different phases i believe that the golden, uh, golden age will be directly related to the monastery phase where basically you're you're coming down from a mountain and you're having a group of people because if I want criticism, I want criticism not from the metropolis because yes. I'll, I'll, that will either distract me or I'll ignore it completely because, yes. oh, they don't understand, they don't know. And maybe there are some valuable criticism there, but I will shut it down because I feel like, like I'm being attacked. But on a monastery, on the other hand, I want people that are actually very supportive, mm. but also can somehow point out the things that I, the flaws in my reasoning or in, in my thinking or in my music right so i would ask like what kind of of individuals would you like to have on your own monastery it's a great question i would like to have people who are also very motivated to contribute and like have their own ideas but that they can sort of support other things as well so in other words that the, my ideal would be kind of like emergent, temporary collaborations. So, you know, like, it's like, oh, I'm working on this piece of music. What do you think? And then you're like, you come in and you're like, oh, yeah. Mm. And, you know, you add to that. But it's not just like only coming to me that we might both do that for someone else or something mm. like that. And what I found in the communities that I've sort of started, because I've been lucky to be a part of the interintellect and other communities, but there's also some that I've started in London and mm. either started or inherited, as it were, as in someone else started it and then uh, uh, handed it over to me, including a book club and a discussion group. And what I find is that 
some of it becomes self-selecting once the monastery is underway, but a very good way to sort of self to get that self-selection process going is to require some kind of contribution up front. So mm. we've almost never had any issues. We, I, I think we could say, I can say that we've never had any issues at my book club or at my discussion group. And I kind of wonder if it's not because they require, you know, reading and effort in order to get involved in them. And so there's, mm. and there's this understanding that you're coming in order to contribute to a conversation. Mm. And often we're all coming to something new. So it's not um, necessarily, there are times that when we would love to have, you know, an expert along or something like that, but in general, we're all going into the new territory together. And so there's something already collaborative about that. And so I, I don't know if that's a general principle, but it's something that I've thought about a little bit. And, you know, inter-intellect salons have this a bit too, which is that there's, you know, a reading list or, and there's mm. an understanding that you're coming to, to participate in a discussion. Mm. So maybe some element of like, almost, it's not a, like, you know, you could also limit attendance by just charging money or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that would be a very different effect, you know, mm -hmm. which is just like, if you have a free event, but you have to read mm -hmm. this, you know, 20 page thing or something to attend, it just ends up selecting a different kind of person. And I'm yeah. not saying that's the only kind of person that you'll ever want to have, but there, at least that's been my experience that, that it does, you know, contribution up front both makes people more interested, involved, committed, collaborative, and it sort of limits people that might come in with a more critical attitude. Yeah. Not that criticism is always bad, but you know, people that come to shoot in, shoot down ideas at the beginning or something like that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Brian, I, I just have two more questions before, before we wrap this up. So the first one okay. is, uh, what are some of the values you believe we need in a modern golden age? I think a commitment to action and a commitment to trial and error. So basically mm. being pretty open to the fact that you're going to, if in order to have a good idea, you're going to have a lot of bad ideas. And in order for something to work, you're going to have a lot of failures. And so building a kind of tolerance or resilience or, or even anti-fragility around failure and saying, look, these failures are integral failures at the individual level of, we tried this project and it failed, or we tried, I tried, you know, uh, this method of like meeting up or something like that. And it failed that rather than regard those as, as like something discouraging, regard them, regarding them as a necessary part of the project uh, of the process in order to improve anything, it's going to require like evolutionary forces and, and that's variation and selection mm -hmm. and that that level of selection it is a good thing and so kind of encouraging those small scale experiments you should not just that you should always be failing and you know beating yourself up about it but trying to set a frame where people are encouraged to try things and you just see what works without without a strong expectation that everything must be well engineered and and have a high chance of success and we're spending all this time like is this a good idea at the beginning? It's like, no, just try it. See what mm. happens. Iterate, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful uh, answer. Brian, once again, thank you so much. I really 
truly deeply enjoyed our, our, our conversation. Uh, my last question is, if people want to connect with you uh, and, and to listen to your podcast, which we didn't talk about, sorry, but yes, things that's okay. but, but uh, like, where can they find you? What are some of the best places uh, to, to get in touch with your work? Tell us everything. So that's Brian Cam, B-R-Y-A-N-K-A-M. And that's I, my address, briancam.com. You can also go to my Twitter, twitter.com slash forward slash Brian Cam. I also have a sub stack. As you said, there's a podcast that's linked to on the uh, website. And I would love to hear from anyone. So please feel free to DM me on Twitter. I would love to, to speak to any of your listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll definitely have all those links uh, to the description. And you should definitely listen to, to, to Brian's podcast. It's, it's, it's great. Brian, once again, thank you so much for doing this. It was uh, delightful. And I really hope we can, we can talk soon. To everyone listening, uh, this is Brian Kemp. You should definitely follow him and listen to the podcast once again. And by the way, while you're listening to Brian's podcast and giving it a great review on every platform that you use, maybe you want and to, to do the same with the Modern Golden Age podcast on uh, Spotify or even on YouTube. And I'll see you all in the next episode. Bye. Thank you.